Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Greg Barrett gets introduced to the stage these days as a best-selling author, which is true, but there's more to Barrett than meets the eye of anyone who's read He's Just Not That Into You, or the follow-up books he's written with his wife, or who saw him host a daytime TV show, or who listened to him podcast Walking the Room with Dave Anthony, or who hears Surf, Scott, and Punk Band The Reigning Monarchs, or rock out with him and other comedians on his musical comedy showcase Bring the Rock. Barrett tells me about how his mother and Margaret Cho finally convinced him to embrace comedy, how David Cross, Janine Garofalo, and Patton Oswalt helped him form long-standing bonds, how the replacements figure into his grand scheme of things, and how coming back from cancer has impacted his views on life, mortality, a career, and family. So let's get to it! So, Greg Barrett, thanks for joining me on Last Things First, which is the name of my podcast. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, we just, this, like a, we, we, we met for coffee, and then the podcast just broke out, right? <laughs> I was like, let's do it. Let's do it. If we're going to have this conversation, let's make it impersonal and in microphones. Well, I carry around <laughs> my equipment at all times because you never know when a podcast can break out. It just did, man. That's, That's these so are the great. times we live in. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, so last things first, I might as well get this out of the way now. Yeah. It's been a crazy week for celebrity deaths and friends deaths. And I wonder since you've been going through cancer the last year, year yeah. and a half. Yeah. Do you process mortality differently now than you did a couple of years ago? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely. I mean, I, I mean, my own personal, my only, my own personal sense of it is um, when I when I uh, uh, was diagnosed with cancer, which was last summer, um, originally, and uh, 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 we didn't even really know what it was because I was in Australia and I had to go home. For the diagnosis, so but they were like, it's not good. You got to get to a hospital immediately, but not here. Um, so which I took personally. Were you at the Melbourne um, Festival? Or I was the, the yeah, festival? I was okay. doing it. Yeah, I was doing this <laughs> one man show. So I, I, um, they basically said you just want to start treatment in your home country, and you've got about seventy-two hours. So go. Well, here's a box of oxycontin. Get on a plane. Which that's never a that's a not a bad invitation to do anything. Yeah, I'll take a box of cotton anywhere. So. <laughs> Uh, I might mess, might mess with my sobriety a bit. So anyway, I flew home and I found out I had um, uh, Hodgkin's B cell lymphoma, which ultimately mm -hmm. is a treatable cancer. Or you know, um, uh, at least seven months ago, I was 100% clear, so I feel pretty good. And uh, Scott Thompson has the exact same. And the kids in the hall has the exact same. Not cancer. carrot top, Scott Thompson. Scott, not carrot top. It? I don't wish it on him. <laughs> but Scott Thompson for kids in the hall has okay. same cancer, and he's had and he had a, you know he uh, it's been in remission since 2011. So. Anyway, do you talk um, to him about it? I did. He, I, I ran into him at the Festival Supreme. Jack. Okay, the um, Tenacious D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple yeah, years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack um, put uh, my uh, Bring the Rock show on there, so uh, I was very grateful. Right when I got out of bed, I was still. Um, I just had a little bit of hair, and uh, it was like the first thing I did. And he also paid me more than he paid everybody else. That was supposed nice to be a secret. It was supposed to be a secret, but I was just a very like. Because you know the way the bill, you know what I mean. It was just a really he was. It was don't, don't oh, I I don't think puddles like, more more than I should have got, more than I should have gotten is what I should say because I have no idea what everybody's right. got. I'm very sweet, um, and Bill Burr and Tig donated their time and it was pretty amazing. That's cool. But anyway, 
Scott Thompson and I ran into each right. other there, and I, we talked about cancer, and yes, he had the same thing. My relationship with mortality, I think, is just um, – you just there's just no givens, man. I mean, it's still surprising. It's never not going to surprise you, but I can tell you that – the, at least from my perspective, if you're the person that's afflicted or you're the person that's gone, mm-hmm. you ultimately wanted to go. Like, but you wanted to go more than anybody. Like, you don't want anyone else to go instead of you, right? In my family, I mean, the only thing I can say about well, you know, you know, parents or anybody is like, you want to. If it's if it's anyone in my family, let it be me. Please let it be me. Not my wife. Not my kids. Let it be me. Maybe my stepmom. It doesn't matter. That doesn't. <laughs> I don't mean that. I don't have to retract that. Not even, not even the kid that can't figure out uh, a Coke can. Oh my God! No, cubes. she's no, no. This is a great bit. Thank <laughs> you very much. Yeah, she, yeah, the, the ice, yeah, she had a hard time. The way you me. structure that bit is that's very nice of you. Thank you. Uh, my podcast is. Uh, you mentioned sobriety. My podcast is kind of like a qualification. Yeah. So I'd like to start with what it was like for you before comedy. What was it like before comedy? Yeah. It's so funny. What was it like? I've been thinking about that a lot because I, I just finished the book um trouble boys which is bob Mayer's book about the replacements okay and so it really i that was my band in college like when i first got there and i was like that was really the thing that i went that this i can be so before that was my i wanted to be one of the replacements and i drank like one of the replacements and i dressed like one of the replacements and i acted like one of the replacements which means i was a you know a mess (laughs) but i was also really really passionate about making music and doing theater and all that stuff I did in college and all that kind of stuff. But I never really thought about comedy. I just, everyone I was around was funny. So I didn't, I never thought of myself as an exception because I thought, well, you have to be exceptional at everything to do it. You don't realize nobody's really exceptional at anything until they work on it for the most part. And so I didn't, um, so I never saw that as a career ever. And I wasn't, I liked, you know, there was less stuff. So you knew about everything, right? You just, We had our, you know, you had, you knew what comedians were, and they were Bill Cosby and 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 uh, uh, Carlin and Robin and you know what I mean, Eddie Murphy and you know what I mean, and as time went on, right, um, even up to Martin Lawrence, there just were not many giant comedians, right? And there wasn't the internet to dive deep into right, this. right. And then you went and got your records at record stores, and all of my bands played on something called College Radio, which were the shitty. Not shitty. They were great stations with no with no uh, reach. It was an alternative to alternative music. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was like. I mean, it was just like it's just they were there wasn't anything on the radio, so right. they they that's where they played those records. And then you know it was REM and and um, um, and the Replacements and a handful of other bands that started to creep their way through. You know, while you know some of the new you know some of the Adamants and the Duran Durans all kind of converged on radio, and eventually it caved in. And then you know. You make that way, and in comes Nirvana. You know. Were you still based in the Bay Area so back I, then? So after college, I went to San Francisco. I tried my hand as an actor. Uh, uh, I had a really tough time. That's not really the place to learn to act. And my mom said, "Get in an improv group." Okay. Um, my mom was really doggedly chasing me down and trying to get me to be in comedy, and so I went and I uh, joined this improv group. Wait, what did your mom see in you that you didn't see? Oh my God! I, well, here's the thing about my mom. Yeah, always. Always comedy, always theater. She's like, "Why are you in sports?" Uh, if I can take that personally, but my mom, my mom was the classic, You're rugged, com- right? My mom was the classic, mm-hmm. like, pretty much everything out of her mouth was right, and pretty much every way, the way she said everything made you go, "Go, fuck it." Like she was, I was, she was just a really a tough broad. So the tone, the tone, yeah, and the, yeah, it was it. just weird. I mean, I loved her, I loved her, I loved her so much. I and I, 
and we, you know, and I told her that all the time, but I, she was a pain in my ass and she was always trying to get me to be a comedian and she was always telling me that they, my parents grew up on stand-up. You know, they came up in the 60s and they didn't go towards the Beatles. They went towards, um, they went towards Phyllis Diller and, and, and everyone was playing in San Francisco in the coffee houses. Right. That was, my dad was into jazz. So, yeah, so he was sort of, you know, they were just a little bit before the Beatles and comedy was like the, like it is sometimes, you know, cyclically the rock and roll of the moment, you know, and so when Bob Newhart and, and again, Cosby and some of those guys were starting to work at the Hungry Eye and the Purple Onion, you know, that's what my parents, they loved it. That's what they loved. So my mom wanted, saw that for me kind of, because I also feel like you're not a genius either, so please do something. What was the first time that you actually decided, okay, I'll take you up on this? When Margaret Cho asked me to, to do it. So Margaret was in the improv group. How did you meet Margaret? For she was. In, I joined an improv group. I audit, blind audition for an improv group, and Margaret had been doing it four months. And she okay. said you'd be great at it. And there's another guy named John Bauman who was a comic who. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he said do it. And so, we did it. And um, I did it one night. I took my friend Laura Milligan, uh, who was I also had a band at that time, and she was singing in it, and uh, or I was more in her band, and um, yeah, and and uh, I did it once, and I loved it. I was like, oh my god, this is home. And I think what was good for me is I had no parameters because I didn't – and I only knew my friends that I was starting out with. I didn't have a rich history. I didn't have – or care. I didn't care about Lenny Bruce. You know, I still don't really. Mm-hmm. I But but I did end up working with Hicks just because they needed openers, right? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, there was so many working clubs in San Francisco. Pretty much anyone in San Francisco had one shot at opening for him at some point, and I did it like three times. I don't know why it wasn't, he didn't like I mean, it, was, it wasn't like he liked me. It was just fate. And you were quite, available. Quite honestly, it's one of those things where you couldn't leave the club because you didn't know when the show was going to end because sometimes it ended 15 minutes in and people were storming out. They're like, what do you fuck? Get up there. The show's over. Why is it over? <laughs> fuck, it's over. <laughs> you, okay, everybody. Well, thanks for coming. Next week, um, uh, Warren Thomas will be. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Like, he was just like, it was so, <laughs> he was so, uh, you know, uh, you know, he, he would, he'd have good shows, but he had a lot of bad shows, you know, right. he really upset people. He could, yeah. yeah. He had his way and it yeah. didn't matter what the audience thought. But he was going to do his thing. His biggest lesson, which I think is lost on a lot of people was a, he was a consummate performer who today would just kill. That's all he'd do. It, and he, and he would be right for the times, right? right? He was ahead of his time. He would be right for the times. And you'd have to hustle because there's a lot of guys now that are really good. I don't think some people know. Oh, you know, you're you're almost you're as good as like he was just a comedian. He right. was not a prophet, to my way of thinking, but a great one. But what Bill Hicks did, that Janine took, and that David Cross took, and that Patton took was he stood his fucking ground. If you didn't like this show, there was no other show. Whereas every once in a while, I would find some way to like you know run around or you know I mean I really had. I just didn't know who I was when I started because it was not what I wanted to do. And I came from a theater background of acting. So I didn't know about like just being myself on stage, man. So, but you started in improv first. Yeah. And what kind of, imp- was it, were you doing the Herald? Or were you doing short form games? What short form of- games. Mostly short form games. Yeah. Yeah. It was not a great group. It were was you- not, it was called Crash and Burn. And it mm-hmm. was just, that was, I mean. <laughs> and it did? Yeah. Or we just call ourselves the replacements and have their career. Like it was the same thing. How long did you do that before trying stand up for the first time? Not long, not long, a couple months. I was excited because I, I got it and I mm-hmm. went and saw it. I went, so I started going. So within that month before I started, I went to see, uh, my buddy John worked at the, at Cobbs. And so we went and we saw Robin and 
Bobcat do a show, but the guy that opened for him was the one. And I love both of those right. guys. I did. I'm not trying to be the, uh, the – but Greg Proops spoke to me. <laughs> yes. And that's when I got excited. I was like, oh, my God, this guy's wearing a shirt with skulls on it, and he's jeans, and he's fucking talking. He was just great. That's that's quite a show. Unbelievable. And Ron Greg, Williams, Bobcat Goldthwait, and Greg, Greg was the opener. opener. Yeah, he was the opener. And I remember, and they were, look, they were both great. Robin was amazing, and so, and, and so was Goldthwait, and I've always loved Goldthwait. That was at Cobbs or Punchline? Cobbs. Okay. It was Cobbs. And then I went and saw, um, you know, some San Francisco guys that were really obtuse, that were like my favorites, Bob Rubin and Jeff Bolton. I just saw a guy named Tree. He was just a road guy. But oh, bald, I remember was, seeing Tree's headshot. Yeah, in and the, he, in the nineties. Yeah, yeah, and he had a cool thing. And he started an improv class and created that character and took it on the road. He had there was no. He never pretended not to be Tree. <laughs> I mean, he was like, right? It wasn't. He knew. He, like he wore the chaps and he walked around and he acted like Tree. But he it, there was a wink. Like you know, I got to do this to leave the house, right? I've gotten beautiful towels at home. Do you suppose the guy who plays Jesus on the Sunset Strip is kind of like that now? I think he might, yeah. I think he He's might. He's like, it's my deal. That's, That's what I, I do, man. Can't be anything but Jesus. This is what I am, Jesus. I'm just committed to this guy. What was the imp, uh, the uh, open mic scene like when you massive? It was interesting because as the walls were crumbling around the comedy clubs in the late '80s, but the the but the kids had gotten the bug because when we started, you realized there was also very little televised comedy. But then it started to burst. Right then, like almost after the comedy club scene. Cable stations realized, you know what's really cheap programming? Fucking do a three, four camera shoot, stand up. Yeah. And so they, the, the scene was rife with guys that had only had five minutes, who'd done five minutes, who couldn't fucking feature, right? But we all did TV really soon because we were all so young. So it wasn't that long. It was like a year or so in. And then I did half hour comedy hour. And then, um, and then it was on, you know, uh, and there's Caroline's and there's all those different, I did a, two improvs and a evening of the improvs. And so we were all doing those shows and, um, and none of us should have been on television. None. I mean, I even remember like, like Louis first, like when we were on Louis and we were on Jake Johansson, who was my, one of my very favorites of all time. Oh yeah. Jake Johansson. I love him so much. And, uh, uh, Louis was, uh, Louis, you know, Louis, here's how different Louis act was. He came out, he was wearing a suit and he goes, uh, so I have diarrhea. I don't. I mean, I'm I'm not afflicted. I have a jar of it in my refrigerator. You know, that was his right. act, like weird jokes. Like we all were trying to kind of find our way. Like it takes a long time to become Louis or whatever, you know? And they filmed quite a bit of uh, the half-hour specials in San Francisco too in the, in the early, mid-'90s. Right. So then, so then HBO yeah. started anointing, pe anointing yeah. people, right? So then they started doing their specials. Uh, and again, Comedy Central went, Jesus Christ, look how easy it is to bang out at like half hour cheap. Yeah. Right. Um, and I'm not, it's not cynical. There were a lot of comics around, but you know, so we got half hour specials pretty early. I mean, when I did mine, it was 99. So I'd been at it almost 10 years. Right. It's, I still seem young, but I'd been at it, you know, for a while. So it was like the right time. I had 30 minutes that like, I had an hour. I was already headlining, but I had 30 minutes right. that belonged. That rest of that hour probably didn't belong anywhere. And this was before Uncool, so you still thought you were the cool. I still – I've never <laughs> thought I was – I've never <laughs> thought that. Um, um, just because a guy uses hair products does not mean he gets it. Um, uh, and chain wallets. And and, yeah. Yeah. Well, the chain wallet is, is – and my wife will tell you. The chain wallet was a um, – you know, I, I had one during the swingers age and I liked social distortion. So all around that time. 
And then I just stopped wearing it. I'm like, this isn't like that cool. Right. And then we went out to buy a car and I forgot my wallet and we were just, just married. And my wife goes, and we drove a long way. We went way into the to valley. She goes, who goes to get a car without their fucking driver's license in the thing? She goes, I don't care if you like it or not. You're going to wear that chain wallet. And I was like, yeah, because I would always take things out of my pants. So, it became yeah. pragmatic suddenly. Yeah, and then it just became, and then I just really, that guy really punked me on my way into the concert to see the Foo Fighters and said, you know, yeah, I got to take the chain. And I was like, why is your 40? And I was like, okay, you just gave me a fucking special. <laughs> did you do the San Francisco competition? I did. I did it once just so I could get road work from Jeff Fox. I mean, Jeff, uh, the, the, the yeah, Fox. John Fox. From, John from, Fox. It was, yeah, John Fox. But, and, but Jeff... Um, God damn it! He, uh, he 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 runs Live Nation. Oh, uh, Wills. Yes, Wills. Wills. Jeff Wills. So, what year did you do that? The same. I did the competition like, I think I did it like my first or second year, so ninety or ninety one, and what? that's where we all met. That's where we all became friends. So, basically, everybody. Wait, were you the same year that? Because uh, I have had Posan on the podcast, and he said that he and Patton became friends during the competition, driving around. No, I went the year before them. Okay. But when everyone would come to town, all the comics found each other. We all found each other. We would go in and we'd see Tom Rhodes. And we'd go in and we would see, you know, Marin. Or we'd go in mm -hmm. and see Mitch. Or we'd go in and see whoever came to town. And we all became friends. And, so, and then people just got going to fucking move out here. Because there was a budding community out here, right? Okay. And then Blaine and Patton and... And Posehn kind of came down from Sacramento. So he, Northern California, yeah. so they all kind of converged at the same time. And Marin was there for a little bit. Yeah. And then there was Tony Kameen and Alex Reed and a bunch of people who write now. And there's, you know, there was all kinds of folks. Ron Lynch was there. I mean, it was just an unreal scene. And then Margaret. And the interesting thing was, which I talked about in this other book, that the big stars at that time, though, the people that were really popping were the girls. You know, and from that sort of whatever they, you know, it's funny. When sometimes people like to, you know, when they do the histories now, and I sometimes I get young comics like, tell me what it was like in the nineties. <laughs> fucking just makes me want to shoot myself. <laughs> but they always want, they always, they they sort of mention they, you know, they use alternative comics, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And it's always that thing of like, you know, whenever you hear people like, like when grunge bands are interviewed, they're like, we weren't a grunge, we were on a part of this. Like, yeah, just fucking take it. You were in a thing, and people liked it enough that they labeled it, and they put it in a box, and they put you as one of the dolls in the kit. Yeah. So if you're in the thing, fine. But you, we were all friends. We all just really loved each other, and we ran as a gang, like a thirty, you know, like a big fucking gang. And nobody really gave a shit what the other person's act was. I mean that for real. Like people were like, I mean, we loved each other, and we watched each other try. And nobody wanted you to be like them. There wasn't like a you. We'll all do what Janine's doing, or right. all we'll all do what we'll all be obtuse like Bob. Like right. everybody was like, no, you be you, but let's be friends. So that's what the scene was, you know. So there was no. You know, it got ascribed to a certain style, but if you look at the breadth and the width of it, it's just stand-up. No, I think I was living in Seattle in the mid-late 90s, and the first time I saw you was you and the whole crew came up for Bumbershoot the first time they did comedy. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. That's that, that, that was exactly the sense that I got was how you're describing. Yes. And that a group of friends who are all different and but equally supportive. That was the second of three times I would meet my wife and she wouldn't recognize, wouldn't know who I was. Like I met her once at my house at a party that David and I had. And then I met her there and I was like, hey, we met at my house. And she was like, I don't remember. I was like, okay. And then I asked about her and someone said she's got a boyfriend. He goes to raves. I don't know. That's a fucking sentence from the 90s. And then eventually she, uh, like, you know, a year or so later we were getting our hair done at the same place. 
And that was like, I was like, we met at the bumper shooting in my house. She was like, I remember. I was like, fuck, just remember me. <laughs> and so she came and saw Tompkins and I host a show over at Largo that night. And Garofalo was on it. And Garofalo knew her. And that's how she got a part of our scene because she was friends with Vince Vaughn. It was just a big cluster of people. But yeah. So Janine, who was my girlfriend, introduced me to my wife. So it took Janine's kind of star power to get your wife to at least give you a th- <laughs> Well, to come to my house the first time, it was Vince Vaughn, who's coming with Janine, because they were making that movie out in Utah, right? And then the second time, she was up chasing Sunny Day Real Estate, trying to sign them. Sunny Day Real Estate. Yeah, when they got back together, right? And then then she was just getting her hair did, and so was I, and then we met, and that was it. Yeah, but Janine signed off on it. And actually, that kind of meant, Amira goes, I don't want somebody's old boyfriend. (laughs) Well, everybody's somebody's old boyfriend, (laughs) hopefully. So did Janine talk you up to her? Yes. Janine has never been anything but, like, it's interesting, you know, um, and this is just the only part I'll touch on this, what happened with Patton this right. weekend. Um, you know, it's interesting who's, who's, who sticks with you and who, who isn't around. And it's amazing how close we still are after all this time. I was sitting at the, the show um, – uh, last night I was hosting the the sh- uh, Shebang show. Right, we're at the Moon Tower Festival. Yeah, Moon Tower Festival. Awesome. It was all and it was an all female show, uh, which I just only ever refer to them as comedians because it was just an amazing show. But I was sitting down, and um, the thing with with, with uh, Patton's wife had happened the day before, and um, I was just sitting down, and I felt somebody come up behind me and just wrap their arms around me, and without even having to say anything. Or turn back, I knew it was Janine, and I knew what she was saying, and I didn't have to say it back. And it was like, you know, after a long time that you still have those kinds of friends in show business is fairly amazing. You right. know, they're not all there, and not everyone is a great person, you know. I mean, I am, but <laughs> but you know what I mean? So it was like, like being here and that kind of thing and remembering. And like, remember, we are just family, and it's all just people, right. and that's all we care about. And again, it isn't really about... How the world sees you as a comedian, that's how none of us see each other, you know what I mean? Or, or any group of people, you know? So when everybody started moving to Los Angeles from San Francisco, how... That was Ben Stiller's fault. <laughs> so Ben Stiller, uh, who I, I, I adore uh, in all his awkwardness, he is a good man. and he But he did his show, right? and we were all friends, and we watched... And Janine was down there, and then David went down there, and then Dana, who was – Dana's a big part of this whole deal too because yeah. Dana was in San Francisco, and we worshipped him. I still do. And he um, – uh, and so he um, went down, and then it just started one by one. Patton was like – you know, and a lot of the people were, you're not ready. And I'd be like, that doesn't fucking mean anything. You get to Los Angeles, they don't know you. No matter what year you show up, you got to go get back in line. So Patton went down, and then Brian went down, and then Blaine went down, and then everybody just started cascading down. And I was trying to make this band work at the same time. We thought we'd have a better shot in L.A., so eventually I moved down in 94. Well, you bring up Dana, which is great because he gave this tremendous keynote speech last year in Montreal. Yes, I listened to it. About coming to grips with not comparing yourself to everybody else. Right. So, you know, that's what I was asking. When you all moved down to L.A., how were you able to keep that kind of camaraderie together without – Feeling competitive, it all, was, all trying to break into Hollywood it was at the tough. same time. It was tough. I'm not going to lie. You had those days where you were like, what the fuck am I doing here? Right. And I was – I mean, it's fortunate for So uh, when I got down there, my band just ultimately didn't – it didn't work. Uh, we were much better at the drinking end of being like the replacements than the other part. So we broke up, and I had, was, I had a, you know, I dated Janine for a short time, but 
um, she was happening when we were dating. I mean, she was, yeah, that was this her. was, this was like when it, it all started, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was even before it was like just after, um, it was, she was making, when we were dating, she was making cats and dogs. Okay. So it had not even come out yet, but you knew you could tell. Right. Um, and I was like going to open mics and I was drinking like crazy. So I wasn't handling it well uh, at all. And it wasn't a very good look for me. So I eventually ended up in re- – I, I took my – not rehab. I just went to a meeting. I just stopped okay. eventually <clears throat> and um, yeah, after a bad – you know, one, one of a billion bad nights. And I was living with Cross at the time. I lived in this big house before with all the girls of comedy. So it was this big house up on Curson that was like – Laura Milligan started it. But then it was um, – um, Laura was like one of the people who pioneered the whole – Let's start your own scene in a laundromat kind of thing. She's okay. one of those people, and she now sings for Pussifer. Like she's 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 like this weird, like if you start really digging, she's this unbelievably super talented, very influential person who just was like, I can't. I'm gonna marry marry the guitar player who was my best from high school, and we're gonna back, move back to San Francisco. But they're both very talented. And she's had a great life. She's a yogi now. But um, anyway, I lived in this house. Karen Kilgariff lived in the house for a while. Um, um, uh, Kilgariff Cho, Keitlinger. Karen Anderson, um, Cintra Wilson, the writer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like everybody, right? And me. I was the only dude. You know, they'd, they'd all move in and out. I was the only guy there. And that's, so Janine and I almost dated just because she lived there. I mean, it really wasn't, you know what I mean, to be fair. I was crazy about her. And I think she was like, well, he's here. And uh, anyway, so when I split up, that's when I got sober. That's when I quit. The band was over. And I was living mm-hmm. across at that point, And he was letting me live for free in a place. And I got a catering job. And I started really hard at comedy. So that was 96. Okay. So living in a house of of comedians who you're the only male, mm-hmm. when you ended up consulting on Sex in the City, was that like, oh, I I know how to do this. This is my wheelhouse. Can I tell being- you? Can I tell you? I put myself in that position my entire life. I would at high school. I'd work on the. I would always. I would work on the yearbook staff. All women. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got to college and I finally discovered theater, there were not that many straight guys in the theater department. So right. it was all women again. I was just. That's just what I was drawn to. I just like being around women. I mean, I, you know, I have a couple really great friends that I've had since grammar school, actually grammar, grammar school, and then uh, male friends all along the way. But, but, uh, yeah, I was always around lots of women. I just liked it. Right. I like being around them. I like dating them. I like all of it. I like the whole thing. Women are pretty great. They're incredible. They're pretty. I mean, they were always incredible. They were fascinating to me from three on. And so I was just always around them and it wasn't. It's just where I found myself, and they always felt comfortable with me, and mm-hmm. we'd always talk, and I'd always f- either fit into, we're going to date, or I'm your buddy, or mm-hmm. b- big brother, or whatever, and I got very protective of my girlfriends, as you would, and so, you know, that's where I sort of formulated whatever ideas became the relationship stuff. Yeah, but that became a whole, well, a second career, which became kind of the thing that you were known for, for... It's the thing a good I'm known period of time. Yeah, 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 and also, and still, really, pretty much the thing I am known for. Like, it was in an era where you couldn't really like the the one of the cool things about the internet is the width and the breadth of it. The 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 width and the breadth of it allows you. I like the other way too. Yeah, I do too. I actually do. Breadth and the width. Yeah, yeah. The breadth. The the breadth of it is, it let you be a lot. The internet let lets you be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Aziz can be a comedian. He can be a director, producer. He can write a relationship book. And people can like all those things and not pin him into one because he's Aziz. The brand is called Aziz, right. right? So if it had been a different time, it could have just been Greg Barrett does this and he does this and he does this. But I have 15 years of being a stand-up 
I fucking did my special. Things are cruising along. I'm starting to headline clubs. I'm like, man, this is what, all I wanted to do is just do stand-up. And, and I had a job consulting on Sex and the City because Michael Patrick King was my friend, the executive producer. And there's no straight – again, there was no straight guys on the staff. Once again, all the women. I loved it. I had a great time. Everyone loved me. And then that fortuitous and also career almost ending, stand-up career ending thing happened. And so, you know, that that's sort of where the crossroads were. Right. Um, uh, and again, I'm only telling this as fact, not – I don't feel sorry for myself. No, I mean, no, but you know, sometimes like it, it, every being a best-selling author is not something to. No, not at all. It's beautiful. No, no, no. <laughs> but like Tom Rhodes and I talked about this. You know, Tom Rhodes is this guy that I don't think enough people know who's this great comedian who's been around for a long time, and he was always as smart as he was pretty. And he when he had his long hair. Yeah, yeah and yeah. then they put him in this shitty show, and then they right. threw him out. They literally disposed of him. And when my talk show was canceled, I was done. I literally the same as everybody else that's been through this. The phone stops ringing. You lose your agency. My actual agent, who I loved and was amazing, was Dana's wife, Sue Nagel, and she went to head up HBO, and yeah. I had no one at that place, and then you're done. And then my manager quit because she hated the talk show so much. It ruined her wanting to want – and she managed Tompkins and I. She's like, I'm done with show business altogether. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was rough. So, so when it ended, you're standing there by yourself with what's left, and I could tour because I was famous for the book, but only book people came. Because I think comedy people, not in a malicious way, were like, oh, I guess he's doing that now. Right. You know, and also, or, or I don't like that look on Greg, or I don't understand it because it's so much different than the limited exposure I've had to him. I don't get the guy talking about, I like the guy that has a chain wallet. Now he's a guy that's got a suit on. I mean, he probably has that stupid chain wallet, and for some reason he has a mullet, and I don't know why, because that look is good on the replacements, but not you. Bowie did it better. So what did you do to get back to where you're at now? Part of it was just wait. Part of it was um, um, the podcast, I think, really, because Dave Anthony asked me to do a podcast, and I was like, I can't do another thing. I was so beat down, and um, Dave... Um, was like, I'll come to your house. We'll do it. I'm trying to do one by myself. It mm -hmm. isn't working. I think he wanted to do the podcast he does now, which is the dollop, which is very good. Is ultimately, I think, what he wanted to do. But mm -hmm. with me as a partner, we just, I didn't, you know, we just had to talk about our lives. And we locked onto this thing of failure that's sort of like he'd been in show business forever. And nobody knew who the fuck he was. He hadn't done really the things he wanted to. And he was so angry. He was angry the second week of comedy. And I was a guy who had it all and lost it. And so mm -hmm. it was this sort of like if ever there was a thing that replicated the band I wanted to be in in college, it was that. It was like these losers. But we gar garnered enough of a crowd, but not enough of a crowd to put us where Marin or Nerdist right. or any of those other things were because it wasn't easy. It was dirty and it was personal and it was right. – you know, I low tech. To, you're always you know, talking about tech issues. It, we got time. Yeah, yeah. Until somebody had to make the most genius thing. They go, "You have a closet you can get in in your house. You can be in there. Shut that door, and you've got baffled. You know, it's all it's all shirts and dresses. And sure, shit. We got in there, and the and the sound was fucking pristine. It was mm -hmm. a booth. And we, but we told people, fuck, we had to go in the closet to do this. You know, we we went back in the closet. And I think while the podcast is one of my favorite things I've ever done, it also was the that's exactly what the guys in the band say. The the lifestyle we were living that we created for ourselves was them starting to eat away at us. Like you can only call yourself a loser so many times before everyone else starts believing it and mm. you start believing it and then things start happening and you start to I was starting to struggle with some mental health problems I didn't know I had because I was like if I'm a, if I write books that if I help people I don't have problems. I'm not a genius. But I haven't been reading self sabotage off of you. 
No, far. but I couldn't. I no, but, no, 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 not self sabotage. No, because I'm very. Uh, I tr- maybe do too many things at once, but I um, couldn't get my brain to work. I couldn't get my the demons. Hmm. You know, Marin talks about it. Like everybody talks about it, my my brain wouldn't shut off. So I um, I filibuster. Are we almost out of time. No, we're okay. fine. Um, uh, I'm checking the battery. I was start- Dave was starting to say you're a little crazy, and I, of course, when you're crazy, you can't hear that. And and I tell this story now. I'm doing it on the Ari Shafir thing. Um, the uh, this is I, not yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, he's a great guy. I talked to, about me one Christmas losing my mind and then realizing that someone had mentioned that the dog pills were potent. I had no idea what that meant, but I looked at what well, I looked at the dog pills and there was one with a sleepy face and I went, oh, that maybe will make me feel better because I was almost suicidal. It was a really bad Christmas and I took the pill and it fucking just. <gasps> Ooh, it's like a sweater for the insides. And then, unfortunately, when an alcoholic does something like that, then he's like, well, that'll just be the only time I right. do that, except right. for next week when I do two, and then the next thing I know, I was in rehab. So th- and when that all started to happen, the podcast started to become, you know, with Dave and I, we got out of rehab, and then, you know, there were just all kinds of problems or whatever. But it was cool. I think listening to it, it's like an epic. <laughs> it's like if Raymond Carver and John Updike had a podcast. <laughs> it's just this dark, silly thing, you know. Uh, there were some great comedic moments on it, and we had a beautiful fan base that come everywhere we went, and then, and then it had to stop, you know. And um, yeah, yeah, right, because you had cancer, also. Yeah, and then I, yeah, and then so it stopped, and then when I got out of rehab, I worked my, you know, it wasn't I was living. Fortunately, we have a room in the garage, so I stayed in the garage, and the family stayed in the house, and I worked my way back into my family, sober, happy. I had to go back to Australia before I was. Ready to, so I created this really cool show that was about something that happened to me a long time ago, um, or didn't it? That's the thing. <laughs> and uh, you don't know, you don't know. But it was a beautiful show. It was called "I Am the King Sweater," and it only ran, you know, maybe I don't think we ever did it more than twenty times. Mm-hmm. And then I got the, I had what was diagnosed as gas before I left, uh, turned into stomach cancer or in, in my intestines. And so I came home, and I got. That I got the surgery and I had the chemo and then I got and then my agents who uh, were unreal just fucking just started giving me work like just weekend after weekend after weekend after weekend I'm like I don't care I call my career Hal Sparks canceled <laughs> and then I just go in you shoot a movie okay I, I'll take it <laughs> and uh, was, I, was that what you wanted to do after chemo or is, or is it more your agents kind of pushed you no like no 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 I wanted to do it because I I want I needed the money. I mean, unfortunately for me, like, you know, uh, you know, it was a confluence of things, but we bought a house at the wrong time, and then I didn't work at all for a long time, right. and we couldn't afford our bills, and then cancer crushed us because we hadn't, didn't have enough insurance. Again, not complaining, right. but because I'm alive. And then I just said, just get me on the road. I don't care what it is. We'll figure out the rest of the year, but let me just get back on the road. And quite honestly, I was so surprised at, like, not every city, but there were a lot of people that were coming back out to see me. Because some kids grew up watching it when they were kids, <laughs> little, so they're like, "You're the remember B E H R E N D T or whatever they remember, chain whatever they remember from my act." Because it's all on YouTube. It's all on YouTube. They grew up watching it on when they went, when they weren't supposed to be watching Comedy right. Central. Like they all had their own little. One girl brought me a VHS tape that she'd watched a hundred times. VHS, like it was, okay. yeah. So like it was really like, and and the book people just sort of went their own way. They're all married now, or right. although you've written a couple more. Put, yeah, so. and they've done pretty well. The, we wrote uh, it's called the breakup because it's broken and it's just a fucking date. And right now we're we're writing a marriage book, but it's going. It's you know yeah. it, all of that's laborious. <laughs> but I asked how you know mortality changes your viewpoint 
Did it change your viewpoint on what you want out of your own career? No. It changed what I view a career meaning. Meaning I want to pay for my girls to be able to go to college and to go to school and to have a great life and get a vacation once a year. Everything else is just – it doesn't mean anything. I saw – it just – it's like I, – I think it makes me like it more because I have more fun and I really genuinely – and I and I know you review and I don't mean this to anybody who reviews, yeah. but I don't get – I can't – I have no control over what people think. I never have. And I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because I get tickled. When I tell the story, I get to do it because some nights now I just take my guitar out and I play my own theme song, which nobody's heard because it's not a real theme song because I don't have a show. And then I get fucking mad at them because they don't know it. And I make them sing along and then I put the guitar down and go into the show and I'm like, I just want to do something that's fun. I just want it to be a night where you go, God damn it. That was shit. That was a lot. There was a, I don't, that was pretty great. I don't know what the fuck happened, but he talked about his kids and he had a guitar on. He was wearing a suit. Like, I just want to make it a full-fledged experience and live it because every time I go out, I don't know. It won't be my last time. Is that what also fuels the Bring the Rock shows too? Bring the Rock? Yeah, the Bring the Rock was – you know, here's the thing about Bring the Rock. Um, and it's been compared a little bit to the goddamn, goddamn Rock Pro Jam. Yeah, and yeah, there, yeah. there's – here's, here's what I will tell you. The original idea came up this way. So it's not the same. Right. I had dinner with Tom Morello because my wife knew Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. He turns out to be one of the most entertaining, lovely, funny people I've ever met in my life. He told a story about playing with Slipknot. We were all banging the table, weeping. Then he told another story about getting on an airplane with Jack White. Every story, he sets himself up as the cool guy, and at the end of it, he ends up fucked in some way. And it was so unreal and so good, I said, I would pay 25 bucks a head to hear stories from musicians curated by me so I could help them. Right. And then they play a song, or the band, or they didn't even have to play that night. The band would interpret the song through their story. Okay. And that was the original idea. But getting musicians that can talk all the time is not as easy. Um, it was inspired by Largo and the John Bryans and the Rhett Millers and the Grant Phillips and all those guys. But then, you know, Tom Morello just did it. He told this amazing story about the time they took their clothes off and just stood on the stage. And then he had to run and hide. And he and the cops were after him, and he lucked out. He's trying and he, to hide he, naked, he, naked yeah. and black at an all pretty basically all white festival. And he ended up on the Fishbone bus, and the Fishbone guys were like, "They're an all black ska band," and they're like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and he's like, "I'm fucking being chased by the cops." And he goes, "Are they coming?" Yeah. He goes, "They'll never, he'll never know which one is us." And they all took their clothes off. So when they came in, there was just a room full of naked guys, and the cops went, "Forget <laughs> it." But he told the story in the most glorious way. He's such a great raconteur, and to me, that's what. My show is, and I think the other one really is a. Uh, hey, did you know Bill Burr can sing, or did you know or can play the drums? Because right. he's on my show, but you can you know. So it is a different. It, it is a different thing. Who, I just would have liked mine to gotten made at one point. <laughs> there's still there's Comedy still Comedy Central. There's, there's still time. There is still time. There's still time, and there's You're other a good venues. Man. That, that's right. That's there's, right. There's a lot of platforms now in this. That's what somebody said to me. I said to my friend, I said, you know, I was saying my agent actually, my or my manager, and he said, uh, I said, oh, you know, they're doing this thing. He goes, do you know who wants to compete with Comedy Central? Everybody. Everybody wants to compete with everybody. So right. don't, you know, just just work, just do, just write your idea down. Don't let anyone tell you that it isn't the right idea until you're told by somebody it's not selling. That's it. Just write your idea down because there we've all had the same. The same ideas have been pitched over and over again, and every once in a while, somebody pitches Breaking Bad. Yeah, there's always right? there's always another cop drama. There's always yeah, you're, you're either talking about an ensemble cast or a so you know what I mean. Like it's all, you know, you know the Office is what Modern Family. You know, there's right. just a group of people. Which Superstore, which is amazing, is the newer. It's right. just pilot yeah. season is the same. 
Yeah. Year in and year out, just yeah. different young faces. And there's great television everywhere, and some people are doing amazing things on the internet. And I, I won't watch anything on Snapchat. I just have to step back. <laughs> I know there's good stuff. Somebody said there's good stuff on Snapchat, and I wanted to kill them. And yet, there probably is. Yeah. There is, but it's, there's a lot of garbage. Well. Somebody called me. I was, I was talking to a guy about a job one day. because you don't want this job. You're too old. But even if you did, you'd have to produce stuff for Snapchat. And I go, you know what? I think I'm going to call on the other line. Because that's what I mean, right? And I go, yeah, I don't yeah. know what to say. <laughs> I don't need to know that. Yeah. Uh, so you just mentioned getting some great advice. Who's the last person or, or place where you've read some, some great advice that's stuck with you? Wow. Anything recently? I read something today I thought was really touching about Prince. And then I saw it in action. In a, in a, uh, so so v uh, Van Jones said, Prince wasn't really there for you when you were a good, having a good day, but he's always there for you when you're having a bad day. Mm. So Paul Westerberg yesterday from The Replacements was talking about him. He tells his lovely stories. About every time he met him, he was like, like he goes, he they used to play in a room that was right off First Street. Avenue. Yeah, that's First right. Street, they yeah. played the Seventh Street entry, mm -hmm. which was a hundred, like maybe not even a hundred people, and the other one was, you know, whatever. So the replacements were in the small room, and Prince was in the big room. And he'd walk into the small room, and their audience would just follow Prince right back into the big room. Like he would, and he goes, "I hope he did that on purpose." Because the one time I talked to him, I was at a, I was at a, um, uh, I was at a, at a, the stalls in the bathroom at the urinal, and I just said to him, "What's up?" And he said, "Life." <laughs> so he goes, "So those were my interactions with him, but we recorded a lot at Paisley, and I was doing my solo record." And a friend of mine died. I assume it was Bob Stinson of the replacements. Mm. And he goes, and I was broken hearted, and I went down the street to get some smokes, and I came back, and the entire studio was filled with balloons. And Prince had done that. And it's like, it's that like idea of like, I, we can all say shit, and you can all tweet out to people, and we all want to do that stuff, but doing something really feels like that. You know, doing something for somebody when they're, so that's, that was like good. But remember, like, it's nice that you send an email, but what else can you do? Right. You know, for people that you love that may or may not be here tomorrow. Words are great, but action is where it's Action's at. where it's at, man. That's what I'm saying. Like, and if you're a young comic, just keep performing and get off the fucking internet. Nobody cares, and you're going to suck at the beginning. And guess what? You don't get to be liked by everyone. Maria Bamford's had bad reviews. All right? Even the most favorite trust, you know, Louis, everybody gets shit on. Or not shit on. Sometimes they have a bad night. Sometimes it's goddamn just not entertaining. Sometimes you can go, if you wrote a bad review about me tonight, it'd be fucking fair as rain. You know, right as rain. Right. Yeah. Well, I uh, have some great shows tonight, and thanks for... Thanks for asking me, man. Thanks for yeah. being here. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.